0: Hello, thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd, and this is the 30th episode, What Moves You? When I started the podcast, I thought I definitely have enough to do nine episodes, and then we'll see from there. And then I thought I could probably do 18. And so now I realize that I would like to just keep making more and more. In this episode, I talk about different factors that motivate people to act in particular ways. And there are five that I place on the spectrum. Forgot to mention another theory called the gravitational theory of motivation. And this simply states that we always have motivation, but it's influenced by our environment. So when we don't feel like exercising at the gym and instead we sit down on the couch to watch television, there is motivation to watch that program. So If people want to accomplish a certain goal, they can adjust the environment accordingly so that there's less interference of motivation from things that do not serve their higher purpose. And speaking of purpose, when we're thinking about motivation as it relates to values and how to find what that purpose is, you may want to reflect on your life and identify the times when you felt truly happy or really peaceful And then you can simply ask yourself, where were you? What were you doing? Who were you with? Maybe you were alone. Maybe you were with others. Maybe you were helping or serving in some way or around nature or animals. And that can be an important clue as to what we're really here to do. I've mentioned before that I have a couple social media pages, Facebook and Instagram at Michael Todd Fink. And I'm still trying to figure out the best way to share the books that changed my mind. And I'm not sure if I should include all of them or just the ones that have been influential on a spiritual level. Because there are some science books that are more technical that may not be very helpful to most people. But they still changed my mind. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that, whether it's in a post or a series or a video or a photograph of the book. But if you keep in touch there or follow me there, you'll know when it comes. Also, I get some questions from time to time about things that I've talked about in the different episodes. And I think if I get enough questions, I could do some episodes that are just question and answer. So feel free to send in questions about things I've already talked about or things you're not sure about or would like to know more about. And I can do a whole show that way. And it can be anonymous, so you're welcome to send those questions through social media or through my website, michaeltodfink.com And next Tuesday, which is coming up in a few days, we have another mindfulness meeting at Edward Hospital in Plainfield, Tuesday, July 30th at 7 p.m. It's in the conference room downstairs on 127th Street. So if you're in the Chicagoland region, you're welcome to come. It's open and free for anyone to attend. And that's going to be about the psychology of climate change. So I'm really looking forward to sharing some, I think, new ideas, new perspectives that will hopefully become a podcast in the future as well. So thank you again for listening. Thanks for all your support. Please share this episode with whoever you think it may be meaningful for. And good luck transforming your inertia into momentum.
1: I'd like to start with a little short story from Zen traditions about a student who approaches a martial arts master and says, I really want to learn from you and master your system. And I'm really motivated. I'm willing to practice 10 hours a day. How long do you think it will take? And the master says, casually, maybe 10 years. The student gets a little discouraged and he says, but I'm really motivated. I'll practice more than 10 hours. And then the teacher thinks, he says, "Mm, 20 years. (laughs) 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 So you can reflect on the meaning of that little Zen parable, but we'll come back to it. But motivation is pretty understood neurobiologically as a release of dopamine, a neurotransmitter that helps us take action. And when it reaches this particular region called the nucleus accumbens, then it completes a reward circuit. So most descriptions of brain science are going to include this reward circuitry. I'm not gonna go too much into that because you can learn more about that in the podcast episode called Anatomy of Habit. It's all about circuitry in the brain and why we do what we do. But I would like to touch on three common types of mental illness where motivation is relevant. One, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It sometimes appears as though there is a lack of motivation for people who suffer with this condition. It's not because they don't have the energy to do what you would want to do. So motivation is the willingness to pursue a goal. The reasons for why we would take action, having good enough reasons that then inspire us to move. And in the case of ADHD, it's hard to focus. And the mind is kind of like a magnifying glass. Wherever it lands on gets amplified. And and in the case of ADHD, the magnifying glass is never staying in one place too long. So it's hard to see clearly and channel one's energy. But it's not that there isn't energy, it's just that it's hard to focus. And similar to a magnifying glass, When the human mind focuses on one thing in such a way where the light of attention is concentrated, there you can start a fire. And that fire could be destructive if it's negatively motivated, but it could also be constructive, like the fire of knowledge when we're pursuing like a spiritual goal. But a person with this situation obviously can try different medication, but practicing attention training on the breath is going to help that person focus that energy. And if you start very small, with very small increments, then you won't need to fight yourself so much. So people try to hold their attention on something for much longer than they have the strength to do. If we think of attention (coughs) like a muscle, if you try to do more than you have the strength to do, you're going to fail and think that you're not cut out for that kind of work. If I go into the gym and try to pick up weights that are heavier than I can lift and I decide exercise is not for me, well then I'm never going to achieve it. So the key here is small bits of attention and learning to enjoy that and growing it slowly, steadily, systematically. In mindfulness training, it could just be watching the breath and learning to enjoy that focus. If I could do it for one breath, two breaths, and it's not that it's not enjoyable, it's that no attention is given to it. We've talked about this before, but there are four things we have to do every day to survive. Eat, drink, sleep, and breathe. Eating, drinking, and sleeping, people enjoy ordinarily and build their whole life around those three. They have plans way ahead of time for what they're going to eat They have spaces in their homes dedicated to those three. Dining room, kitchen, bedroom for sleep. But there's no breathing room. And the reason isn't because it's not enjoyable, it's because of the frequency. So we eat several times a day, we drink several times a day, we sleep once or twice a day. How many times do we breathe per day? 21,600 times on average. But that many times, then it's easy to forget or to take it for granted. But it's the most essential of the four because we can go some weeks without food, some days without sleep, maybe two days without water and two minutes without air. So it really is probably the most enjoyable, but because we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, we forget. And among all the visceral processes in the body, breath is unique because it can either be regulated unconsciously by the medulla in the brain, lower part of the brain, or if I breathe consciously, then the cortex is active and operating it. And no other system is really like that in terms of metabolic processing. I can't decide I want to pause my food in the intestine. I can't hold my heart until I'm ready to beat it again, and I can't beat it with the pressure that I want to, but I can regulate my breath. And so this dual mechanism is, a, is an opportunity. And I think that if we start to just decide, I will do one breath, two breaths, three breaths, and grow my mindfulness practice like that, it could be as enjoyable as anything else that we love. Could you imagine if there was only one breath needed per day to survive instead of 20,000? Well, it would probably be a big deal. We'd maybe get invited out to breathe. <laughs> Where do you want to take your breath today? <laughs> now, People say, well, you have to have a kitchen because you have to make food I and mean, you have to have a bedroom because you have to sleep because they're saying you breathe everywhere you go so you don't need a breathing room or you eat everywhere you go <laughs> eat in the car you eat at work you eat everywhere right and wherever we go we're going to sleep there too so why can't we have a breathing room and if we can't have a breathing room why can't we have a breathing corner of the room in that space it's quiet sacred we don't take anything else, any distractions. And we go and we focus, like the magnifying glass. We concentrate the light there on our breath. The second one is depression. Depression is that lack of energy. And it's very different than ADHD or ADD. It doesn't feel like there is the energy to actually do the basic things that we would want to do, like hygiene, paying bills, going to work, and this is, this is a problem, and as that grows, we struggle to do more and more basic activities of life, and it really becomes a great impairment. And in this case, the depressed patient is going to feel like this is something that's unique to me. People without depression have the energy that they need to do what they want to do. So it feels like you're just out of the game of life, and life is passing you by. Like your life's on pause, and if you ever have a depressive episode, you know what this is like. It feels like your life or your movie is on pause, and the rest goes on without you. So what to do? One is to understand that this is largely a myth, that other people without depression have the motivation to do what they want to do. Basic science tells us in Newtonian mechanics that objects at rest tend to stay at rest unless a force acts upon it. The average American hits snooze 12 times before they get up in the morning. That doesn't sound like everybody else has the motivation they need to do what they want to do. And to realize that makes it okay to have to force yourself to get started. Mark Twain said, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Once an object is in motion, it tends to keep going. That's momentum. So for the person with depression or the person who feels like I lack some of the energy to do what I want to do, the key here is creating momentum. And momentum takes a force to get started. Like a rock sitting on top of a mountain has no motivation to roll down the hill. But once a force acts on it, it has all the motivation it needs to keep going. And this also applies in like, conditions like addiction, where people are struggling to find the motivation to stay sober, and yet they had all the motivation they needed to use. But even that didn't start out that way. There is a particular expression for the kind of force that's often needed to get somebody started with drugs or alcohol hear pressure. There's still a force that has to operate. It's not like the very first time somebody hears of drugs or alcohol, they're off to the races. They hear, they hear some people showing. And it may not be that someone's forcing them to do it, but society is forcing the impression. And slowly, slowly, a person gets exposed to it, builds a habit, disrupts the circuitry in the brain, and the decision-making faculties start to go offline. And so a decision that is clearly not in the best interest of the person, like I have three DUIs and I still think it's okay to drink and drive uh, and risk my life and other people's, that's clearly not a good decision. But you could see in an MRI, that's because the decision-making centers are impaired. And so when they try to reverse this, once again, it's gonna take some force because they're changing the velocity of this process. So it takes a new kind of force. And I point out to patients in chemical dependency in a humorous way, look at all the things that can stop you from your new goal. Because they say, you know, I was going to go to this 12-step meeting, but I'm not sure how I feel about believing in a higher power. That kind of turns me off. I'm like, well, when you were going to a party. What if there were some people there that believed in a higher power? (laughs) I couldn't get high that night because I just didn't align with all the religious (laughs) beliefs. Or I was going to get high, but money was tight that month. So I had to put it off for some time. Or I was going to go to this party, but I didn't have a ride. Well, people, they find a way around once that momentum is strong in the process of addiction. And so I point all that out in a humorous way now like you got to align philosophically with everybody to stay sober you got to believe in the same things they got to have same political beliefs you got to have plenty of money oh it takes so much now right so take a ounce of that momentum that we use to be destructive to be constructive but anyways with depression it does take force it does and it's okay to have to force ourselves to do things and I mentioned that I was inspired to learn that one of my favorite authors, Paulo Coelho, the Brazilian author of The Alchemist, he's written many beautiful books, and I've read many of them, and I get lots of joy reading, reading his stories. But he said in an interview with Oprah that for his whole career, every day takes so much force to get started. He has to force himself to sit down and try to write, and then eventually he gets into a flow and can keep going. So I think we can all understand that it's not easy to get started. It takes some force, but there are certainly things that we can do to to help us build that momentum. And if you think about momentum in this way, what is harder? Is it harder to go to the gym or exercise once you're at the gym? Go to the gym, but think of how silly that sounds. It's harder to sit in the car and ride over to the gym <laughs> than to lift weights and run around the track or take a yoga class, whatever we do there. The first one's harder because the first one required some force. Once we're there, it's like, well, let's do this. We're already here. I tell patients that at the hospital, who said, oh, it was so hard to get here. And i say, is it as hard to stay here as it was to get here? No, well, I don't feel like leaving now that I'm here. So force, use that, use the force. (laughs) May the force be with you, yes. And the third mental illness is anxiety. We talked a lot about it last month, or maybe two months ago. So there's plenty about anxiety on the episode after the Age of Anxiety. But I'll just say that the, the seemingly lack of motivation for the person with anxiety is not that they don't have energy, It's not even that they can't focus, it's that they are worried about the outcome. So there's some dread about going to that interview, about being around people you don't know, being in an open space if there's a a phobia associated with the anxiety. And so a person could avoid any of those things, and it's not like they have to go back to bed because they have no energy. No, that's in the case of depression person could avoid and then have plenty of energy to clean the house, watch TV, do whatever at home if they're not being triggered. But to the outsider, it looks like you're so unmotivated. You won't do the thing. Why won't you just go for the interview? Why won't you just show up to school? And so in this case, it's not about finding more energy. It's about recoding our sense of danger because we are afraid of things in the 21st century that aren't dangerous and our bodies react and make it very difficult for us to accomplish the things that would otherwise be very meaningful to us like if i think a plane is too dangerous to use that would really be irrational it's the safest mode of transportation on the planet by all metrics and it could really hold me back from doing things that I want to do. Is it uncomfortable? Yes, it's uncomfortable to be on a plane. I said that <laughs> last month. Certainly uncomfortable to fly over two oceans in one day. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, but I didn't die. Yes, there is a remote possibility and there is a greater possibility that that could happen in all the other modes of transportation. But with anxiety, it's about recoding by understanding that what I want to do is not dangerous. And by slowly and steadily exposing myself to those things and breathing through them, the key is breathing through them, by telling your brain that you don't need the adrenaline. And it's difficult to talk yourself out of this or to talk yourself through this, but you can breathe yourself through it. You can breathe yourself through it by pausing, taking four deep breaths, and letting that increased oxygen do the communication for you it will show the brain that we're safe. Because ordinarily we would only breathe that way if we were going to sleep. And our ancestors would only be going to sleep if they knew the environment was safe enough to do so. Otherwise their hormones will keep them awake and alert. But if they know someone's on watch and there's a fire and the space is cleared, then you could breathe deeply and go to sleep. So it's an ancient signal And by slowly, steadily exposing ourselves to things that aren't dangerous but are outside of our comfort zone, we actually stretch the comfort zone. And that's the goal with trying to overcome what seems like a lack of motivation and anxiety. So those three, I think, form a common triangle of motivation and the obstacles to motivation. But there's a spectrum of how we get motivated or what would motivate us what would be the reasons to do something? And so I'll start on one far end. On one extreme, you have fear. People use fear to motivate others. Governments use fear sometimes to motivate people into a certain behavior, to motivate people into a certain vote. For us, it's certainly not the best energy to tap into to try to achieve something. Fear certainly isn't a sustainable energy. Fear, like anger, when you're really angry or really resentful, you get exhausted. You have to take a nap. And then beyond fear, we have money. Most of us are doing at least something that we probably wouldn't do if not for money. But we have to, we have to do something. But we don't have to do as much as we think, perhaps. But it's different for all of us. For me, without a family, what I need is probably different than what you need. So there's no clear enough, but it's kind of like uh, my teacher said, it's sort of like a pair of shoes. If your shoes are even a little too tight, life is very uncomfortable. And if they're even a little too big, it starts to become uncomfortable again. To have the shoes fit just right means you can walk through life comfortably. That's what it's like with our needs. If we constantly think that I need more, there's no end to that. But anyways, money is not sustainable either. Money can only get you to work hard enough to not lose your job in some cases. And so what do companies do and corporations do? They try to create all kinds of internal incentives. You'll get a bonus if you do this, you'll get more time off. You'll get uh, points towards something or commissions because they know once the salary is there and it's all set, well, there's no more motivation. If the person isn't in love with the work, how hard will they work? And, and we have to reflect, like for us, is that good enough for me in life? to just do what is needed or do I want more out of life. So it's said, do what you love. But there's limitations to that because like if I'm a single parent and I gotta work two jobs, I can only do so much of what I love. I have bills to pay and responsibilities to meet. So then the alternative approach to this is to practice loving what you do, especially in times where you are limited with what you can do. It doesn't mean that you have to loathe the work. I've done a lot of jobs that weren't comfortable, weren't easy. One summer after school, I worked at the school down the street, uh, assisting the janitorial team. And then when I finished there, I went to newspaper factory, which is no longer there, cleaning toilets over there. So I had not a nine to five job, I had a five to nine job. 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., and I remember just realizing that it's not permanent, it's not forever, it's just this summer, and I was grateful for the the person who got me any job, and I just tried to do it with quality. tried to take it moment by moment, day by day, and make the things that I was cleaning clean. Because if I thought I was only doing it for money, I knew that I would quickly get too frustrated. And it was a good practice for me because we have this idea that if I don't like what I do, I just will never have the motivation. But I think we can practice bringing more love and attention and quality to whatever we're doing for the sake of our values, not just the sake of our money. To try to get motivated by something deeper in the present moment. The third one, knowledge. People get motivated when they get curious and they want to learn. I was really motivated to go to India to learn about meditation. And I probably was like that student in the parable in the beginning of this talk because I came with so much zeal. And that's also why my teacher was probably laughing about that zeal because he knows it's not sustainable. (laughs) A young 27-year-old guy Yes, feels very motivated because I want to know something. But knowledge is much stronger than money, much stronger than fear. So curiosity is a useful type of awareness, useful type of energy. And in mindfulness, we are curious. And it really connects you more deeply to the present moment. So I could be in a painful experience. But if I'm curious about it, then I don't reject my experience and I don't start to close off to the present moment. I open myself to what is. That's something that you can use to realize that there's never a dull moment. There's a saying from Rumi, live your life as if everything is rigged in your favor. What would we do differently? Even things that were unpleasant, or painful or seemingly a total loss or total failure. If we believed that, what Rumi said, then we would see that as a stroke of luck that it didn't work out. We don't know why, we just know that it is because the universe is operating on our behalf. So by denying us that thing that we wanted, it must have something better in store for us. By creating this space with this relationship that has departed, there must be something better. No, but we don't think that way. So of course we don't look for it. With the negativity bias, you're just on the opposite end of the spectrum. You think nothing good is going to happen. I'm not worthy. I'm unlovable. Uh, I'm never going to be happy or have, have my situation settled or my health is never going to get better. And so then we build up all the evidence for that. The fourth one is beauty. Beauty is the motivation of the artist. And when he or she is creating, they get themselves into a flow. There's no talk of motivation once the person is in the flow. Sculptor chipping, chipping, chipping. If you've ever seen the documentary Jiro, Dreams of Sushi, it's about like an 87 year old sushi chef that's been making the world's best sushi. He started when he was nine. And his day is like exactly the same for decades so that he can just adjust one little thing to make his sushi a little better. He stands in the same spot waiting for the train, rides in the same car at the same time, arrives at the same spot. So he can see where he can make an improvement, identify where he can fine-tune his craft. And his restaurant serves nine people and it's a six month waiting list and they said well why don't you make a bigger restaurant you can make more money, serve more people He said, but I can't make more than nine plates better, that's the best I can do so they have to wait and he has some apprentices and after 10 years or 20 years he says this is good enough for you to serve it or good enough for you to have your own shop so Beauty. He, he dreams of it. That's why it's called Geo Dreams of Sushi. He dreams of how it could be better. But sometimes artists ask me, What do you do about writer's block? It happens to m- most of us that I can't find the inspiration. So inspiration is a tricky thing. It's not something that you can just turn on like the faucet. But what many artists don't realize is that as they develop some skill at a particular craft, they can fall victim to closing themselves off to the creativity of the rest of life. If I believe that my creativity is only with the pen or the brush or the instrument, then what about the rest of the time? I might need to obsessively be with the instrument. But if I don't realize this, then what, what happens is we're practicing being uninspired the rest of the time. If creativity is only when you're holding your tool, and the rest of the time is not creative time, it's the time that you don't like, it's the, the work that you don't care to do, then why will the inspiration magically come when you're holding the tool, if all day we are practicing being uninspired? If you practice your painting in everything, someone told me that the podcast is very much like a painting, it's non-linear. She said, I can follow your podcast because I don't know where it's gonna go. <laughs> And I don't either. (laughs) So I might come back here, put a little more over here, put some over here. So when we practice making everything our work of art, our life our work of art, then there really isn't a question of when can I get motivated or inspired. You just find yourself doing what you are doing anyway. To not just do it when they have their tool, but to walk with beauty every step. And then the last one, building off that, is love. Again, love is probably the most sustainable energy. When a loving parent is taking care of the loved one, there's little question of motivation. Once we love what we're doing, or love who we're with, you want to serve. You feel spontaneously motivated to give because that giving becomes the gift. If I can, in my authentic way, do something for others, then it's a joy for me. And in the partnership, if by being me, I can serve you, then uh, it's a great gift. And if I can be someone's best gift, that's amazing. Because people blossom in that energy by getting to be more in that presence. So it's all about having less, being more with love. And if you struggle with this because of who you're with or what you have to do, really start to think about what are the obstacles to loving the people around me, to loving the things I have to do. Motivation versus procrastination. Procrastination only comes up because we think we don't like what we have to do, or we have a deadline. I'm glad it's called a deadline, because it's not a lifeline. It's not real, it's a deadline. It means there's no love there. If there's love, there's no question of a deadline. If I'm writing a song, there's no deadline. The song's done when it's done, because I love the song. It's like my own child. I'm birthing something into life. So there's no thought of a deadline that I give myself two hours. When there's lack of love, then there's deadlines. So that's where procrastination emerges. But, of course, sometimes we find ourselves in life where there are deadlines. (laughs) Or we're in school, or we're doing some work, and, and somebody else is imposing the deadline on us, so... What do we do? But procrastination, yeah, it can be an enemy, but it's only an issue when we don't want to do that thing. And sometimes we need to realize, I don't like this. I don't like this work, it's not for me. So make a plan, make a strategy to move towards what you love. But sometimes it's just that we have the wrong attitude. So you take something like doing the dishes. We procrastinate. I keep telling people, The best time to do the dish is right after you use the dish. The food will never be less caked on (laughs) as it is in that moment. And there will never be fewer dishes than right after you use that dish, but we put it off. Okay, so why are we putting it off? Because of various reasons, but if you really break your attitude down around this procrastination, I don't want to do the dishes, why? What really is unpleasant about it? If you take it like piece by piece, is it that I don't like to put my hands in warm water? No, that can't be it. Because I put my hands in warm water, I put my whole body in warm water for self-care and pay for it. Is it the suds? No. Because if I could put all of me in warm sudsy water and just chill there, I would. So it's something else. Maybe it's cleaning something. But it's that... Oh, I shouldn't have to do this. Why do I got to do all the dishes? I did all the dishes last meal. I cooked the meal. Why should I do all the dishes? I cooked. You know, so it's just an idea. It's just an attitude that it's unfair. I shouldn't have to. Or somewhere else we'd rather be. I'd rather be sitting and watching the movie now. Someone else do the dishes. But this is all something that can follow you everywhere. You can always rather be somewhere else. There's always something that you could conceive of that would be more enjoyable than where you are, but it's no way to live. So I say, do the dishes as if there's nothing else in the world you'd rather be doing, especially if you have to do them anyway or you're going to do them anyway. Don't tell yourself you have to do them. Tell yourself, I want to do it. I would like to do it. If you're going to do it anyway, why do it half-heartedly? Why practice living that way? Do the dish, clean the dish, and try to make it as beautiful as you can. So that's procrastination. Motivation versus apathy. It's like indifference. In politics, we get apathetic all the time. Because everyone's bad on both sides or all sides. So I just stay out of it. But as one author put pretty well recently, it's not always true that all sides are all bad. And even if they are, they're not equally bad. He said you could write a book about the crimes of the Allies in World War II. You could write a book about the racism of the British Empire and so on, right? But people still needed to take the side of the Allies or not be indifferent. Politics is just an example, but we become indifferent because we think it won't make a difference. And while true, my, my particular action may not make a big difference, but it will make a difference in me. I can become a person that's not indifferent. And again, like inspiration, if I'm practicing being uninspired in everything in life, well then, I won't be able to find it. If I'm practicing being indifferent, I'll be a person that just is without motivation or passion. There's a story of two partridges, husband and wife. They lay some eggs and then they go on their honeymoon. And because they're gonna be traveling away, they ask the sea to protect their eggs. And the sea is a little bit wicked. So the sea says, yeah, I got this. I will take care of it. You go on your trip and I'll watch the eggs for you. So they go, when they come back, the eggs are missing. And the partridges say to the sea, where's the eggs? And the sea acts naive. I don't know, they were were here, but the sea's hiding the eggs. Finally, the partridges realize the sea is just deceiving them. So the husband dives into the sea, takes a mouthful of water, flies back to the shore, spits it on the sand. The wife says, what are you doing? He says, I'm emptying the sea. She says, but look how big the sea is, and look how much water you brought back. He says, it doesn't matter. I can't remain indifferent to what the sea has done to us. And so the wife joins in. Then it's just them two, just taking water from the sea, spitting it out on the sand, and nothing's happening. Or seemingly, right? Then the other birds see. And they say, what are you doing? They tell what happened. We can't just do nothing. Maybe we can't do everything, but we will do something. So then the other birds join. Then all the birds are emptying the sea. And then this is a um, Hindu mythological story. Then Garuda, the mythological bird that carries Vishnu, sees this scene. And he thinks, how foolish these birds are on the earth plane. The sea is practically infinite, and they're just taking these mouthfuls of water to the sand. But he feels some compassion for them, so he goes and tells Vishnu, and he says, you won't believe the foolishness down on earth. All the birds are trying to empty the sea. And Vishnu says, it's not foolish. It's how a movement starts. It's how the vibration gets raised. It's how you transform a culture. Somebody has to say, I will do it. I will be motivated to do whatever I can do. And that energy ripples. And so this is something that we need to remember when there's times of great apathy, that that I may not be able to change the whole situation, but I can change myself. And if I change myself, I become a person that won't have the regret of failure to act. I think most people will probably find that they will regret more what they didn't do than what they did do. Then the third one here that will cross compare, motivation versus ambition. I don't mean in any of this to say that motivation is synonymous with ambition. I was saying that motivation is more synonymous with momentum, but ambition is a type of drive. And it's, at least in the way I'm describing ambition, it's kind of antithetical to mindfulness. It's a consolation for the person in the present moment that in the future, I will have what I want. I will have my goal and then I'll be peaceful. And so this is like chasing gold at the end of a rainbow. You keep going, you keep going, you keep going, but there will always be a gap between you and this other thing. And you can live your whole life as an ambitious person and never really be content. Motivation is about enthusiasm for life. It's about being in alignment with your values and feeling in the flow with that. Heading towards things, but it's a kind of carefree type of movement in the world. We'll talk about it more in a future uh, session, but in Taoism, they call it Wu Wei. It's kind of loosely translated as carefree wandering, but there's still direction. There's still a goal in mind, but there's no strong attachment to the outcome. So be careful with ambition because it can get you into a pattern where your happiness is always outside the present moment. It's always somewhere in the future. In this original story, the student's told it will take 10 years. Then he's told 20 years because it's not about doing more, it's about being more.